I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our 2021 vision series, A Narrow View of the Whole World. There is no one-size-fits-all rule of life, and the rhythms and disciplines with which you populate your rule will depend on your season of life and your stage of apprenticeship. And as a general rule, I don't seek out any news media, no CNN or no Fox, not, not even the Colombian. I used to like uh, having the local news on in the background in the morning, just because it made me feel nostalgic. That was the kind of environment in my, you know, in my home growing up in the mornings, the local news on the little tube TV that was about this big with the big click wheel on the side. Uh, and the local news, even around here, used to be really dorky, uneventful stuff just, just two years ago or so. A cat up a tree, you know, that kind of thing, or like the real silly on-the-scene guy that goes to the new bagel shop in town and interviews this nervous owner who says the wrong address or something like that. Just the right kind of who-cares non-news to accompany, you know, the morning sounds of brewing coffee and little kids smacking on cereal, that kind of thing. I liked it. It was relaxing to me. But then, you know, 2020 arrives, and even the local news became less like a morning lava lamp and more like, you know, the apocalyptic doom profiteering closing in on all sides, and that was that. I decided to turn it off. Now, I don't seek out any news, but, and here's where I'm going with this, to complete this anecdote, just a couple days ago, I went to the Google main page and just clicked news, just in general, just the general news feed of what I'm assuming is around the world, and I skimmed the headlines of page one. I have not done this in a very, very long time. And I saw headlines about companies that I'd never heard of suing other companies I'd never heard of. I saw political terms that I recognize at least written out, but I can't really define them. Um, I saw NPR talking about something that happened in Virginia. There was stuff about Bitcoin, I think, the usual COVID stuff, vaccine hysteria, all that. Nearly everything that I saw on that first page seemed to me kind of far off, at least in the sense that it's well beyond my control, obscured by the fog of my own limited view of the world and my own limited understanding of cryptocurrency. In fact, the only thing on that page that wasn't quite so dire or far-flung was some kind of basketball update, which interested me even less than Bitcoin, and that's saying something. Now, sometimes I have to remind myself of the little space that I occupy as a human being. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference for church leaders, really great stuff. I met some amazing people, learned a lot. And it's always heartening to me to be amongst other disciples of Jesus who are trying to figure out this thing we call church, all sorts of contexts and backgrounds, everyone just doing their best to follow Jesus. And I sat there hearing you know, from pastors that are doing their thing in New York and California and England and Zimbabwe. And again, I had to remind myself of the little space that I occupy. The world has always been a volatile place. It feels especially volatile right now because that's the story being told on all the screens that surround us. The world has always been big, too big for my own limited reach and my own narrow scope and my finite capacity. And I hear these other pastors telling these incredible stories all around the world, and I have to remind myself again of the little space that I occupy. Now, I do not want to be insular. I don't want to be apathetic. I don't want to be closed off or unfeeling or uninformed. And I don't want to ever encourage anyone in that direction. But I really believe 
that you and I are fundamentally incapable of stretching ourselves out into all the information and outrage or even all the vision and dreams and aspirations of the very big world around us. Really, it's not about the news or about conferences or about dreams or about fatalism. It's about the realm of our responsibility and our control and what we do with it. Each of us has been given a little sliver of life to work with. Maybe some of yours will take you all around the world and into experiences of different people and places, or maybe some of yours will have you spending a lot of time in one quiet little place with one quiet little group of people, and one is not better or more important than the other. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we all have to walk the road of apprenticeship. And though it is a road that we all share, all disciples of Jesus all around the world, much of that journey is different for each of us. So to figure out where we're going and how to get there, we will often need what will seem to many a very narrow view of the world, one in which we learn what it means to take care of our own little corner of life and to take spiritual responsibility for it, relinquishing that which is not ours to oversee. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. If you're just joining us, we are now a few weeks into our annual vision series, which is kind of a time for us to regroup and remind ourselves and one another why we're here, why we do this thing called church, and we sort of chart a course for the months ahead. This year, we have, talking about, we have been talking about finding our footing in the chaos of the last two years with something called a rule of life. And all along, we have been saying that there is no one-size-fits-all, copy-paste rule of life. A rule of life is a code by which one lives, sort of like a calendar, sort of like a schedule, and sort of like a mantra by which you organize and, and carry out the spiritual rhythm of your life. And there is no one-size-fits-all. There is no copy-paste rule of life. If that's true, then how do we develop the right rule of life as individuals, respectively, and within the community of Van City and the church with a capital C? So tonight, I want to pull at that thread a bit. Some uh, recommended reading to that end for those of you who enjoy the books. Um, The Critical Journey is a great book about something we're going to talk about tonight called Stage Theory and uh, what it means to follow Jesus in different seasons of life, Invitation to a Journey, another great work along those lines. And for those of you who are uh, over like 35 and kind of in that stage of life, Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser, one of the best books that I've read, and I've read it more than once. I can't recommend it enough. Also about what it means to follow Jesus in different seasons of life. So if you're into that, you can take a picture of that or ask me later. I can uh, have those recommended readings for you again. All right. Now, let's read from the Gospel of Luke. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture? Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 57. The story goes, As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit 
for service in the kingdom of God. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Really interesting and dire sounding words from Jesus. But if you notice, in all of those exchanges, whether it's the people coming to Jesus or his replies to them, Jesus invites disciples on a journey. Often, excited would-be disciples would kind of sidle up beside him along the way and say, hey, can I come with you? Do you mind if I join? And shockingly, Jesus sometimes replied, are you sure? Jesus' invitation was to follow him in a way of life, and it costs a lot. Becoming a disciple means taking up an all-encompassing way of life. So in order to adopt the life, adopt the life of Jesus, to have the life of Jesus, one must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And that, I think anyone who's tried it knows, takes a lot of practice. It requires the empowering Spirit of God in us, and it requires, not optional, it requires the community and accountability of God's people around us, and with all that, lots and lots of practice. Following Jesus isn't just believing something in your head and then floating through life with relative and subjective moral behavior. It's learning what it means to be with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus, and then learn to actually do the types of things that Jesus did. And we've spent years now at Van City Church. What did Cam just say? It's five going on six years. We've spent those years learning about spiritual disciplines. We often call them practices, the things that Jesus did, how to do them today in the here and now, how to do them as us, our respective seasons of life, our respective stages of apprenticeship. And we always describe those practices and spiritual disciplines as tools. They are a means to an end. They are not the means or the end themselves. The end is life with God. But it can seem like the tools start to pile up. Even if you haven't been with us all those years, just read one of the Gospels. You're, you're like, okay, well, what did Jesus do? He fasted. That's something. Jesus practiced silence and solitude. Wow, that's another one. He prayed. He shared his life in community with other people. Jesus preached the gospel. He contemplated. Jesus practiced generosity, something called secrecy. He did justice. And the list just goes on and on. And some of us, we look at all that and we do want the lifestyle of Jesus, even if it's just that deep-seated Holy Spirit desire in us, we do want the lifestyle of Jesus, but one of the big differences is that our full-time gig is not an itinerant peasant rabbi who spent all day every day doing things like prayer and contemplation and generosity and justice. We have other things clouding up our schedules. We have jobs and friends and families, kids, interests, dreams, and like everyone, we're constantly crowded by distractions and screens and chaos. If our day isn't arranged exactly like Jesus was, are we blowing it? Are we not like Jesus? Should the spiritual rhythms and disciplines of someone who's young and single look exactly like those of someone who's older and married and raising teenagers? Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the early church proposed an ancient tool for adapting and implementing the sacred lifestyle of Jesus into the unique and often disparate people of what they called the way, what we now call the church or Christianity, male, female, young and old, married, single, on down the list, and they called it a rule of life. The journey of apprenticeship is always the same journey, but the road that we take to get there changes. And we change as we walk it and as we age and as life happens to us. So the tools necessary for the journey 
when you use what and why you use it, similarly evolve as you go. So a rule of life is how we learn to arrange those tools, how we learn to use the things that we always need, and how we organize resources for the journey according to its evolving needs. So for instance, prayer, if you follow Jesus, will always be crucial, always be a non-negotiable, always be essential to what it means to follow Jesus. But in a certain season of your life, worship and celebration might be more important than silence and contemplation. And then in another season of your life, fasting and lament might be crucial. And another season, not so much. We call a lot of things journeys. It's kind of popular language. And the language sort of drifts into the abstract by overuse. But think about it. Given that Jesus' invitation was to follow, it logically follows that we are going somewhere. This is not a stationary ethic. It is not a static state of belief. But it is actually a point A to point B journey. Put plainly, if you follow Jesus, you are not meant to be the same person that you were as the years go on. You are being, in theory, constantly transformed into the image of Jesus as more and more of your complicated personhood and story is brought into the cleansing fire of His relational love. It's not the same for everyone. And some things take longer than others to change. But we are changing. It is a journey. In fact, Jesus actually preferred the metaphor of a narrow road when he talked about discipleship or a way, which is how it got its name in the early church. And the New Testament authors love the journey metaphor. They build out the multifaceted aspects of what it means to go from one place to another with all kinds of metaphors, from slavery to freedom, they say, or from being wounded to being healed, from false self to true self, from immaturity to maturity, from death to life. Really, from being someone who was far from God to being someone close to God and how we change as that happens. Thing is, many of us know all this and yet do not actually understand discipleship as a journey. Many of us think that we, at some point or another, came to faith in Jesus, and then we were sort of ushered into a club with like-minded people, if you want to call it that, a status, a static state of being. I was not a Christian. I became a Christian. And sure, we go through seasons. Life oscillates, good times, bad times, all that. But I think we, myself included, often look how often overlook how pressing the road metaphor actually is, the idea of a journey, the narrow road. Look at a few passages from the New Testament that describe the journey with related metaphors. This is actually one of the core ones. Paul writes, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. You are, in the journey of discipleship, like a baby maturing into adulthood. Now, that is a metaphor laden with complexity. You are at one stage in the journey to draw out the metaphor, babbling, unable to speak, unable to lift your own head, but still here, still a baby, present, a human, still on the journey of life. And then you get motor function, and you see more than just blobs, and you can't fathom complex categories yet, but you're developing. And we are like that in discipleship, like kids 
stumbling their way into maturity, often clumsy, often with many imperfections, but we are growing and changing as we go. And this sort of metaphor shows up several times throughout the New, New Testament again and again and again, the idea of infanthood to childhood to adolescence to adulthood. And in the same way that few of us were born on the exact same day at the exact same time, few of us in a room like this, even with a small group of people like this, very few of us are in the exact same stage of apprenticeship or a season of life even. And that's okay. Paul believed that there were stages in spiritual development, landmarks of development. And spiritual formation writers on throughout, uh, all throughout church history picked up on Paul's language and his metaphors, and they developed this into something called stage theory. Now, in my mind, stage theory is an extremely important and useful tool in understanding how to implement your own rule of life. It's about learning where you are in the journey so that you know what tools best suit your season and stage. Really, it's just an effort to put language to a concept that was well represented in the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and Paul, and on throughout the early church. The spiritual journey of apprenticing Jesus. Advanced City we talk at length about the way uh, that we call spiritual formation the process by which we are formed into the image of Jesus. And we've done a lot of work at our church trying to organize our church rhythms and the way we do things and why we do them around this idea of spiritual formation. It's not a new idea, not by a long shot. We didn't make it up. It dates all the way back to the early church fathers, to the founders of monasticism in the fourth century when John Cassian said, there is no arrival unless there is a plan to go. The 1768 allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that by John Bunyan, it's essentially stage theory in fable form. So why have so many thinkers throughout church history written extensively on this idea of the journey and the idea of it being broken out into stages? I think that the reason is because when you don't have a map, it's easy to get lost or to wander off track, or to get distracted, or to stay in one place when you should be going forward, to take the long way when the efficient way is wise, or the shortcut when the long way is necessary. The road of discipleship is narrow and often difficult already. Jesus said so. But if there is something like a metaphorical map to help you navigate that road so that you can best steward your relationship with Jesus, best understand what he's saying and doing with your life in any given stage, best walk the road to maturity without painful backtracking or pointless wandering. If there is such a map, isn't that map a good idea? Of his research on stage theory down through church history, Bruce Demarest of Denver Seminary wrote this, Spiritual journey paradigms provide the perspective that there yet remains much ground to be gained spiritually. Stage theory, moreover, provides a comprehensive frame of reference for the journey. It helps us gain clarity as to where we are presently located on the continuum of maturity in Christ. It aids heightened understanding of the contours we must yet travel on the course. It assists us to not repeat past mistakes and to avoid future pitfalls. It will likely alert us to seasons of testing, crisis, and dark nights yet to come. It will inform us of valuable resources that can enrich prayer experience, facilitate emotional and spiritual healing, and deeping, transforming relationship with Christ. Now, to be clear, 
Stage theory is ancient and time-tested, used in many different traditions all throughout church history. It's not a new gimmick, and it's certainly not the same thing as like a personality test. You know, personality theory is the ubiquitous trend of things like Myers-Briggs and the DISC test, which I think personally are moderately better than the Zodiac. And, uh, or, you know, the ever-popular de-Christianized version of the Enneagram, where, you, you know, people say, oh, I took a test, I'm an introvert, I'm an INFJ, I'm a blue, I'm a Gemini, what? give me a break, whatever. Stage theory is not like that. This isn't about uh, your wiring and personality in the direct sense. It's about a journey that all of us share, but that looks different for each of us and on which we are all in different places. So don't think of it like a test you take and a label you receive. That'll only frustrate and disappoint you. You will also bum yourself out if you think of stage theory as entirely linear, like a Mario game where you advance one level after another until you rescue the princess at the end. It is... After all, it's a metaphor, so it breaks down, but you don't simply move progressively from point A to point B. The paradigm of stages can apply to your entire journey of discipleship in the broad sense, or it can apply to nuanced aspects of your discipleship, meaning your entire journey of following Jesus has stages, but so does your journey with generosity. So does your journey with forgiveness and prayer and relationships. This is why we all are and know such paradoxical people who can be so far along in one aspect of the journey and a total infant in another. Robert Mulholland writes this, this means we can be at different stages in different areas. In one area, we may be well along the path to wholeness, while in another area, God is just beginning to awaken us to another part of our life that needs transformation. Since God always leaves us free to reject transformation, it is also possible for us to regress in this process, or in old-fashioned terms, to backslide. Thus, our Christian pilgrimage is a complex, multifaceted, multi-level ebb and flow of relationship with God. But really, the whole thing is cumulative. We all go through stages in the respective areas of our spiritual formation and as a whole, and it's all going somewhere, so you can't skip stages, which is a bummer, I know. I suppose this is why the New Testament writers favor the whole analogy of a baby maturing slowly toward adulthood. We expect a baby to be incapable of forming complex sentences, but we also expect that in most cases the baby will grow to the next stage of development. Each stage is fine. Each stage is inevitable. Some are harder than others, but you got to do them. You got to do all of them. Getting stuck is the problem. Plateauing is a problem. Regression is a problem. So in that sense, stage theory is a useful tool to help us understand when and if we have regressed or gotten lost or plateaued. And when you know you can unpack your toolbox so that you can chart a course forward with what we call a rule of life. And we have to remember that all of this takes a very long time. Teresa of Avila said in her book, The Interior Castle, which is a book about stage theory and prayer, no one becomes so advanced that they don't often have to return to the beginning which I think is important for all of us to remember. Don't let discouragement or despair reign in the journey, but don't become complacent when the road seems easy or comfortable. 
No one becomes so advanced that they don't often return to the beginning. When you start to talk about it together, you realize that no two journeys are exactly the same, but all journeys are similar for those of us who follow Jesus. And one of the most ancient and well-represented paradigms for what we call stage theory and naming the stage that you're in is something called the three ways. It shows up in writings from the second century, that's how old it is, with Origen in the Middle Ages with Anselm and Thomas Aquinas the 16th century with Teresa and St. John of the Cross, if you're familiar with any of those. And modern writers and thinkers are still working with this idea of the three ways. I want to just unpack them briefly. I think it's super helpful. Stick with me for just a minute. We've almost arrived. The three ways begin with a prologue called the awakening, and then they move on to the actual stages, which are purgation, illumination, and finally, union. So to end, let me just give you a brief word on each. The prologue to the three stages is awakening. Think of life before Jesus in this metaphor as kind of like sleep. You are oblivious to the truth of God, as it were, but then you wake up. For some of you, that happened in an instant. It was during a conversation with a friend or listening to a sermon or over, over dinner with someone you knew. You came to faith. You discovered the truth. And in that moment, life was forever changed. Not entirely in an instant, but the course of your life forever changed. But for many of us, and myself included in this, Awakening is more gradual and incremental. It happens over many conversations and incidents and moments until it accumulates. The American church loves to paint this idea of what we call salvation as something that always happens in an instant. And it does often begin that way, but it is always a process for all of us. Remember, the Bible's favorite metaphor for our relationship with God is a marriage covenant. Now, in this idea or the metaphor, I met my wife um, almost 17 years ago, I w and I was instantly smitten in that moment. Then, in the three years that followed, we built out a relationship that eventually became an engagement that eventually became a marriage covenant. Next week, we will celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary, and we are, yeah, wow, yeah, well, <laughs> no, it is, it's great, and we are still 14, almost 17 years together, as it were, 14 years married, we are still figuring out what it means to be married and how to love one another well. So the process of awakening can be a clarifying moment when the reality of God intersects with your story in power. Or it can be months of slowly showing up to church and asking questions or sitting with a friend and having conversations and slowly opening your eyes to the reality of God. But the idea is then you wake up and you begin stage one, purgation. And here you are a beginner. You are a baby. Discipleship is just beginning. You're learning the teachings of Jesus for the first time, stepping into life with other disciples of Jesus for the first time, embracing community. You're learning spiritual disciplines, the basics, like how do you pray? What, how do you read the Bible? That kind of stuff. And in all this, you will be confronted with something the Bible calls sin. And as you walk, as you practice, and as you proceed, you are slowly beginning to purge sin from your life, hence the name purgation. You are uncovering things that are out of sync with the teachings of Jesus 
and you are learning to live differently. And there are typically four categories to purgation. The first is major sin. This is the obvious, overt, glaring sin that comes up as soon as you learn what Jesus says about anything. The kinds of things that Paul deals with in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, kind of major, huge stuff. Um, How often have you heard stories from folks who brand new to Jesus, incredible stories, said things like, man, my life has changed. Last week I was getting high or I was sleeping around, whatever it is, the greatest sin of all, talking and texting during movies. Just last week I was doing that, (laughs) but then I met Jesus and everything changed. I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to live this way anymore. That's the idea, the kind of glaring lifestyle sin that's the first thing to go post-awakening. And then you have to confront something called conscious sins. Conscious sins are often culturally and socially acceptable, but they defy the way of Jesus. Pornography is an easy example. Political idolatry is another, I think. There's also military violence, divorce, the kind of modern progressive gender ideology, sex ethics. The disciple of Jesus is learning a new way of understanding life and humanity, humility, or humanity that they are slowly learning is totally contrary to the status quo. But there are also things that are socially acceptable inside the church and yet defy the way of Jesus. Materialism, for example, or fast fashion that supports slave labor and injustice, eating habits that support factory farms and cruelty and ecological fallout. There's things like gossip or image curation through social media or digital addiction, things that are flagrantly anti-Jesus, and yet we persist in them because it's easy and it's acceptable and no one's really calling them out. But then things get even trickier because there are also unconscious sins. Robert Mulholland writes, Here is where we begin to let the Spirit of God reveal to us aspects of our inner being that have been invisible to our view, but that now we begin to see as hindrances to our growth toward wholeness in the image of Christ. These are sometimes referred to as sins of omission. If you've ever heard that term, it's not what you do, but what you do not do you have yet to step into generosity, for example, or you've yet to learn to practice justice or to take up evangelism, whatever it might be. And maybe it's that you, or maybe it's that you do good things motivated by bad things. You give, but you give for approval, or you turn justice into Instagram posts. Unconscious sins can be deep-seated and internal. If you're like me, um, it's very hard to ever to imagine ever hitting a person. Um, I've not done that yet. Uh, I say yet. Yeah. Uh, I'm never going to have a gun. I can't remember ever feeling like I wanted to fight anybody in my life. But I can seethe with animosity. That's in my personality. I can destroy other people with my words. I can burn with resentment. I can drag them through the mud and mire with gossip. And all of these things can also be dimensions of violence. One thing seems unimaginable to me, but the other thing is a deep-seated reality for my own brokenness, my own flesh. All of this can be part of what it means to um, confront unconscious sins. So given the complexity of unconscious sins, it's often pretty tough to purge. It goes down really deep, and yet, as disciples of Jesus, it must go. And then the final category in the purgation process is something called trust structures. This is really important. Again, Robert Mulholland defines them as deep-seated attitudes and inner orientations of our being out of which our behavior patterns flow. Those deep 
inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. This is the way that you cope with pain. This is the unique way that you chase happiness and contentment. This is how you survive as a person. And what makes this category so complicated is the fact that many trust structures are good things, inherently good things. It could be things like family or your vocation, which is also your calling from God. It could be your dreams. It could be romance. It could be marriage. It could be parenting or just relationships in general. It could be even things like church work or justice work or your mission. But they are also things from which we can learn to draw life rather than from Jesus. And we all have them. And here's how you identify yours. Ask yourself, how would I feel if I lost and start to list the things most important to you in your life? It might be things that seem shallow and superficial like a smartphone or, you know, a a social media account, or it could be things that are really important and beautiful like your career or your family. How would I feel if I lost? Would it be understandably hard and understandably rightfully devastating, or would it be your undoing? Because it is all going. Instagram will go the way of MySpace. Your career will come to an end. Your impact will fade. Your relevance will dry up. People in your life will leave. Relationships will break, and people will die. Accepting the reality of how transient these things are is a move toward deep trust in God that alleviates anxiety with profound soul-level peace. Trusting God, not for everything to work out the way you expect it to, or just, you know, make everything okay, but trusting God's unshakable proximity, His closeness and His inherent goodness, His love. Believing not in temporal, it'll be okay, but in something even bigger and better, which is the ultimate renewal of all things. And learning to accept, that's enough. And when that happens, you no longer flap and fret and claw at other things and anxious desperation to make you whole, to fulfill you, to satisfy you, to alleviate pain. We are free to enjoy what is good, absolutely, and to not be undone by the inevitability of loss, which is easier said than done, obviously. And all of that is purgation, stage one. The second stage is illumination. Here's where you begin to gain levels of proficiency. You no longer kind of bumble clumsily at the keys of the piano. Your hands can make chords and you play them. And with each passing year, your inner disposition is being overhauled by the way of Jesus. The outgrowth of the Holy Spirit is more represented in your life in ways that people begin to notice. Love, joy, peace, patience, on down the list. Jesus is becoming more and more of a close friend, an intimately known person in your life rather than an idea or an abstract concept. And this stage is called illumination because it is like a sunrise over the mind and the soul. Your eyes are being opened more and more to the truth of Jesus' teachings, and you believe more than his claims to be Messiah and Lord, which are the things that bring you to faith. You believe that the things that he taught are true and good and that he did know the true and only way to God the Father and to life to the fullest. And as you read the Bible and you sit under teaching and you live with your life open to community with others on the journey, your life and your personhood is changing. The Catholic philosopher Michael Novak argued for three levels of belief. He said that there's public belief. That's what you say that you believe, the image that you project to the world, the mostly disingenuous image in your social media feed. 
Then there's private belief. That's what we think we believe until life somehow puts it to the test and we realize we don't believe that at all. But core belief is what we actually believe, the kind of belief with which your life always enjoys congruence. If your core belief, for example, is that fire will, will burn you, you don't have to actually think about that. You just avoid being set on fire as best as you can. If your core belief is that food nourishes you and is necessary to survival, well, then you eat food to be nourished and to survive. So illumination is a stage in which the truth of Jesus is becoming so core to your person that you are developing what Paul called the mind of Christ. It is becoming your core belief rather than just what you say you believe or what you think you believe. You actually believe it. Paul wrote that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and our will begins to harmonize with the will of God and we learn to live in obedience to God. Obedience is, of course, you know, right beside sin on a list of modern no-no words. But in the Bible, to walk in obedience to God is freedom, to be who you really are and to enjoy the fullness and peace of life to the fullest. That's the truth. It's the full realization of who you were meant to be and who, what God has for you. Author and pastor John Ortberg describes it this way, obedience to Jesus in all things is the journey. But Obedience is a far more creative, proactive, grace-powered, intelligent way of life than is normally thought in our day. The obedience Jesus called for requires judgment, discernment, creativity, and initiative. It's about becoming an excellent person, not an excellent rule follower. In fact, an obsessive concern with following rules will hinder your development into becoming the kind of person who does what Jesus says. So illumination is when we are moving in many ways from practice to new levels of mastery. Not perfection, but mastery. Just as there are no perfect pianists, but there are master pianists. Those who, for any shortcomings and lapses in their craft, have developed considerable skill. And then the final stage, union. This side of resurrection, union, is the highest level of maturity for a disciple of Jesus. Jesus talked about being perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But a more accurate translation of the idea for us would probably be something like be whole or be mature or be complete as your heavenly Father is whole and mature and complete. It doesn't imply that there are no longer any mistakes. It does not mean that there's no longer any sin. It just means that sin no longer rules. To experience true union with God is to live in baseline synchronicity with the heart of God. Thoughts, feelings, dispositions, even your desires, the things that you naturally want, flow from God and back to God. Once again, Ortberg writes, union with Christ, to abide in Him, means that He is present in our minds and can communicate thoughts to us at any moment. Human beings are, more than anything else, minds, a ceaseless flow of awareness. Our minds are crucial because it's through our minds that we contact reality. To be constantly mindful of God is salvation from worry, fear, and regret. Union with Christ means He is present to my will and I can surrender to Him all day long. It is a key mark of the will that surrender is one act of the will that never exhausts but always refreshes us. The will was made to surrender to God because we were made for union with God. Now, this idea is not pantheism, which is the idea that God is in all things, that somehow all of reality is in a way divine. This idea is not from Buddhism, which has paradigms for union with or detachment from all things. In this 
view, in our view as disciples of Jesus, God is God. He's not an abstract. He's a very real personal being with a proper name. He is the triune God of the Bible. And we are human beings. We are unique, conscious, with volition and will. And in union, we are being made united with God so that we are learning to share in His thinking and feeling. This is where all of discipleship to Jesus is headed. All of the goodness of the journey is a means to an end, and the end is union with God. To know Him and to love Him and to know and operate in love for the world. As Jesus put it, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Think about it. All that we are doing as disciples of Jesus is moving to that goal, to that end. Whether prayer or healing or prophecy, worship, studying the scriptures, fasting, justice work, generosity, peace, community, all of these things are not an end unto themselves, but they move us closer to loving God and to loving others the way He loves. The problem is, most of us hear the stages that I've just outlined, especially if those are brand new to you, and your first thought is, Dang, am I really only on stage one? Am I still in the prologue? But remember, it's not that simple and it's not that linear. Maybe to you, the idea of union, this whole thing I just described, seems incomprehensible or far-fetched. But chances are you have already experienced union, at least to some extent. Many of you have, in one way or another, in one moment or in a season of your life, felt a deep profound connectedness to God. It often happens in long seasons of suffering, or it could happen in any extended period where the truth of Jesus resonates like a symphony in your soul, and He is ever-present, whether you're trying to conjure Him up or not. Maybe it was in a moment of something like prayer or worship. I mean, earlier when during worship, uh, Tab and Lexi up here singing, it was incredible. It could be something like that. It could be in experiencing a work of art, or it could be in a meal around a table with those you love. Maybe it was like in a quiet moment holding your child or laughing with a friend or making love to a spouse, a moment in which the closeness and goodness of God and how much He has wired you to enjoy Him and life itself seemed undeniable, and the idea that we might be alone in the universe seemed incomprehensible. That is a glimpse, a glimpse of the possibility that you can learn to live in that awareness as a baseline disposition rather than a momentary flash. So, three stages. Why the three? I think uh, Ruth Haley Barton makes it satisfying, satisfyingly simple when she writes this. The classic stages of the spiritual journey, awakening, purgation, illumination, and union, are an attempt to describe the three or the different move- movements we experience along the way. We all experience these stages whether we know how to name them or not. The beauty of knowing about the spiritual stages is that, one, whatever we are experiencing, we can know others have gone before. And two, it helps us to know what to expect and what is needed on the journey. Every stage is a good stage because all of it is discipleship to Jesus. We don't say to our newborns, when you walk, when you, will, uh, when you walk, then you will be my child. <laughs> when you're a parent, you watch your kid move through these stages of development, and you invest in each stage, and you learn to step into those stages with them, and to, I hope, learn to savor each moment knowing that it won't last forever. The kid is often frustrated with the limitations of their stage, as we were when we were younger and still are in many ways. But the parent 
on their best day is just happy to go with them and to enjoy each new season. So it is with God to us. My wife, Abby, is uh, made for motherhood. It's part of her vocation, part of her calling in her life. I believe that. We just had our third kid a couple of months ago, and he's a bit more fussy than I remember the other two being. Um, But it has been beautiful because I honestly believe, I was telling her this the other day, I believe that God gifted Abby with unique grace to meet Arlo in this fussy stage of uh, his new life because uh, he wakes up at night And since I lack the biological resources to feed him, um, I usually, you know, I kind of sit up or turn over and see what's going on. And I I watch, I've been watching night after night after night as Abby, stirred for the ninth, tenth, eleventh time, gets up calmly, often with a smile that I can see on her face, takes him in her arms with this gentle tenderness, and she whispers affectionately to him as she feeds and soothes him back to sleep again and again and again, and she never seems bothered or stressed out. It's incredible. I'm not like that. Um, and our plan has been, you know, for three kids. So if things go according to plan, he'll, he'll be it. And she told me that she's been really aware of that lately, the idea that this, this is probably it unless something crazy happens. And she really wants to savor this time knowing that it will likely be the last time that we have a little baby. And Abby is not a better parent than God. Your Father in heaven has the same and much more patience and gentleness and tenderness for you in whatever stage you are in in your apprenticeship to Jesus. And yes, regression can be discouraging and it can be frustrating, but I don't stop loving my son when he backtracks. My daughter doesn't cease to be my daughter when she doesn't act her age, which happens. Um, we are going somewhere in this journey, yes, but our primary focus and concern isn't how to advance from one stage to another as efficiently as possible. It's about learning to know and see Jesus in each stage. And learning to know what it means when he asks something of you to say yes. And we figure out what it means to live by a code, a rule of life. We want to recognize the stage of our apprenticeship, where we're at in the journey, and then equip ourselves with spiritual rhythms that will enable us to walk the road of discipleship well. That's where we're heading with the next couple of weeks of of our vision series. We are, after all, going somewhere. A map will not walk the road for us, but it could help us figure out where we're going. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us for the journey of discipleship. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.